The humility of God is probably something we don't think of when we consider his attributes. But are there scriptures that show how he humbles himself? How did Jesus show his humility to the Father and his disciples? What is one of the most powerful strains of our fallen nature? Do we do what we do to impress men or please our Father? How can we achieve true humility? What is the real initial evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit? I want to know. It is my great honor once again to welcome each and every one of you to this week's episode of The Doctrine of Christ with myself and Brother Jimmy Cooper. And why is that, Jimmy? Because whether you know it or not, the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. It really is. It really is. And a lot of people, um, we had some company in from uh, good ways away over, it was over Pentecost, and they had a 10-year-old boy. And that 10-year-old boy said, something I want to tell you. He said, whether you know it or not, the doctrine of Christ is the most important thing in your life. Ten-year-old boy watching it, he gets it. And a lot of people are getting it, and lives are being changed. And it's just so exciting. It is. and It's exciting, and it's great to be a part of, of helping that to happen, you know. it's just, It really is. It's an awe. It's humbling, it, you know. it's. What did you say? It's humbling. There's that word, Jimmy. There, and you know, it is humbling, and that's what we're going to talk about as an attribute of God. Okay, this evening, the humility of God. Perfect, it's so important, and it's so important for people in the ministry. And uh, let's get going. All right, Psalm, Psalm 113, and we're going to begin there with verses five through seven, and you know. Do you think of God as being humble very often? That's not really something you think about. That's not what, that's probably not what I would. Now, I know we did an episode back in maybe season one or two called God is Humble or the Humility of God, but we were talking about how uh, all three persons in the Godhead love and support each other in all that they do, and 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 it was just so cool. It was so cool. And we're going to talk about a whole nother level in our DLC today. And there is that aspect. I mean, and we're going to touch on a little of that. But the Father submits to the Son, committed all judgment into his hands. The Son totally submits to the Father. The Holy Spirit totally submits to Christ. And not that one is greater than the other, but they work in a perfect unity. And it functions on humility. Mm. The Godhead is based on humility. We're going to see the plan of salvation is based on humility. And if it was not for the humility of God, he could not even look upon us. Let's look at uh, Psalm 113, beginning in verse 5. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwelleth on high, who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? Now, the scripture speaks of God having to exercise 
humility, even to look on things in the heaven and on the things in the earth. We talked about the holiness of God, and it's literally an act of humility for the Father to even look upon us. He is so omnipotent, omniscient, so marvelous, so supreme, that it's an act of humility for him even to look upon us. He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the needy out of the dunghill. And if it were not for the humility of God, uh, nothing in the relationship between God and mankind could go. We're going to see it's all based upon humility. Um, Thomas Koch, who we were just talking about, uh, he was uh, schooled under John Wesley and uh, called him the Apostle to India because he just converted so many souls to Christ, did so much work. And in his spare time, he wrote a Bible commentary, which is huge. So I like it. But this is what Mr. Koch said. He said, since God's glory is above the heavens, it is a great condensation in him to behold and order the things which are in heaven, but a much greater to extend his kind and careful provision even to us that dwell upon the earth. But when most signally, when the Messiah, the supreme God of heaven, came to visit us here on earth in great humility. The Messiah. I love when he says the Messiah, the supreme God of heaven. What a perfect way to put it. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is indeed the supreme God of heaven. And another aspect of the humility of God is when he emptied himself out in the incarnation. You know, it's almost beyond our, well, we don't have words to express it. Right. It's just like the scripture says, great is the mystery of godliness in Christ Jesus, how he became a man. And, you know, we we can just believe what scripture says, but it's beyond our ability to totally understand it or to totally express it. Through faith, we can receive the revelation of the Holy Spirit to show us what we need to know. And in, uh, Job chapter 36 and verse 5, behold, God is mighty and despiseth not any. He is mighty in strength and wisdom. And I've met in my lifetime a lot of famous people, so-called, that are like so-called celebrities in the Christian world. You have too. You've mm. met a lot of people. You've met a lot of people in the music industry. Yeah. And have, I, I know the answer before I ask it, but, you know, some people, they just think they're too good to talk to you. Uh, they're, they're proudful. They're not humble, you know. And if God was like that, and, you know, a lot of people, they think they're all that in a bag of chips, and they have no reason to believe that. But just think, God has every reason to be proud, but the one that is the perfect, absolute in holiness and power, he's humble. He doesn't despise the meanest of people. He'll lift up the poor out of the dunghill. And, uh, but you know, I've, I've had some people that I've thought, well, boy, I'll be glad to meet them when you do. It's just a big disappointment. Yeah. You know, when I first went to, uh, before I was actually in Petra, I was, um, uh, I ended up being a roadie 
you form basically. I was keyboard tech and a bass tech, and I used to set all the uh, backdrops and all that kind of stuff up and help load the truck and stuff. And when I was when I was getting ready to start that job because I had been a Petra fan, I was afraid to meet them because I was for what you just said. I was afraid that they were not going to be who I thought they were, and thankfully when I met them, they they were good men of God. So yeah. I was relieved. <laughs> and and believe it or not, uh, this is just a little uh, FYI, but John Schlitt who was the lead singer of Petra, uh, Donna used to cut his hair. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because yeah. he, he, he came out of Evansville. Yeah, and Donna literally used to cut John Schlitt's hair. And, uh, all um, you know, I've met, well, I've met a lot, but probably two or three times I've got to be with John, talk to him a little bit, and I've always just thoroughly enjoyed the times I was able to meet him and talk with him. Good guy. I love and, him. Um, I do too. And I appreciate the lyrics and their lyrics are great. And you wrote a few of them lyrics. I got to write know? on a few. Yeah. And you wrote some of them lyrics, um, Song of Moses and some. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's the way it is. And Joseph Carl, the Puritan, he said about, uh, that text, he says, God is so mighty that he feareth none, not the mightiest, yet so meek that he despiseth not any, no, not the meanest. He is mighty, yet he doth not exercise his might in a proud, vaunting, or condemning way. As God is thus mighty and moderate in the exercise of his might, not despising any, so behold another excellency of this mighty God. I mean, isn't that it? Shouldn't we just behold this mighty excellency, the humility of God? This is such a huge thing that uh, let's just behold this excellency. You know, Carl gets it. He sees, wow, just behold this, how great and awesome that is. He is mighty, not only in strength or arm and authority, but as the last words of the verse set him forth in strength and wisdom. Praise God. What an awesome God we serve. And another fellow here, this is Andrew Murray, who's another really good read. And is he related uh, to Ann Murray? I don't think so. (laughs) No, I don't think he has anything to do with snowbird. Uh, this fellow was a South African and he, um, was involved in some revival movements. Good guy. I mean, I love reading him. I think anybody that's a born-again child of God would like Andrew Murray. He's good. This is what Brother Murray said, and I think this is just a gem. He says, is it any wonder, and this is in his book, Humility, um, Andrew Murray and Humility. uh, He says, is it any wonder that the Christian life is so often feeble and fruitless when the very root of the Christ life is neglected, is unknown. Is it any wonder that the joy of salvation is so little felt when that in which Christ found it and brings it is so little sought? Believer, study the humility of Jesus. This is the secret the hidden root of thy redemption. And boy, that's true. And we're going to, and you know, just like the text there, 
God humbling himself to look on the very meanest of his creatures. Um, it's all in humility. And he's so right. When humility is lost, no wonder there are powerless lives uh, and all of these things that come about that, um, you know, it's it's a big deal. <laughs> it's a big deal. And it's a great thing for us that God is humble. And there's a great scripture. There's so many in in Psalm chapter 10 and verse 17. The scripture says, Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt prepare their heart. Thou will cause thine ear to hear. And you see the humble, the humble, the Lord connects with that. And there's a scripture in the book of James, in the book of James chapter four. And if we lack, and you see humility, it comes to us through the fruit of the spirit. And if we ignore humility, we're going to have God resist us in, in James and it's chapter four, I believe. Let me find it here. In verse six, James chapter four and verse six, it says, but he giveth more grace, which was our DOC last week. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Now, we need to think about that. And this isn't something that doesn't apply to people that have been born again. If you know what, you can get into pride after you're born again. God will resist you. If we want the grace, which we were talking about, that grace, that's the impartation, humility. You know, listen to that. He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Pride is something that will cut you off from the grace of God. Now, you know, that's a big deal. You know, that's a big deal. That's kind of, a real big deal. This reminded me, too, of that Stairway to Heaven series we did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because the, the it, it, all of it is humbleness. Almost every one of them, you know, poor in spirit meek, yeah. you know, all these things. Yeah, it gets right into the Beatitudes. And, you know, this is something that you don't want to leave home without this. This is not something that's in any way optional. It's a killer. It can kill your spiritual life and even your soul. Now, in Philippians, the second chapter, there's a doctrine that's called the kenosis of Christ. It comes from the word in the Greek that is empty. But let's look at Philippians chapter two, and let's just begin at about verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. Now, boy, we could just stop there for a while. Paul talked about in Corinthians, the mind of Christ. And we can only have the mind of Christ through the indwelling Christ and through actually reading the doctrine of Christ, what he said. You know, the only way to understand someone's mind is to spend time with them, hear them talk. You have to get yeah. to know Jesus to know his mind and let that mind be in you that was in Christ. And then he goes on to expound. It was all humility. Uh, it said, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. <laughs> 
He was in no way inferior to the Father or the Holy Ghost, equal with God, as Brother Coke said, the supreme God of heaven came down for us, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. He washed their feet. You know, the Son of God, before he went to the cross, he took off the towel and washed their feet and was made in the likeness of men. Could you imagine the supreme God of heaven coming down and becoming a man? And it says, in being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He humbled himself. What a supreme act of humility. And this is a place where a lot of people go off the rails and you hear all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, not to mention any names, but Kenneth Copeland said that on the cross, Christ emptied himself out of his deity and took on the nature of Satan. Uh, what a blasphemous little weasel. Um, this is a commentary on Paul's letter to the Philippians by Gordon Fee, and he really gets it. He says, Christ did not empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself, poured himself out. This is a metaphor, pure and simple. The modifier is expressed in the modial participle that follows. He poured himself out by taking the form of a slave. He didn't cease to be God. He didn't empty out any of his personality or anything, but he poured himself whole self out and God became a man, fully God, fully man in the incarnation. And he says the real humility, the real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation when, you know, you know, people provoke us. And a lot of times when we're in traffic and uh, things get a little testy, or if we're in the in a drive-through and someone is being silly willy, we get upset, don't we? And we, we want to honk the horn or say something out of the window. Jesus was God, and they spit on him. They mocked him. Mm. They stripped him naked hung him on a cross and mocked him. And he never retaliated. Just like that old song, he could have called 10,000 angels. That's humility. That's the ultimate act of humility. If the father was not humble, he would not have sent his son out of love to care for us. And if Christ did not have humility, he wouldn't have even came. And after he came, if it wasn't for his humility, he could have not endured what he did for us. It's mind-blowing, the the awesome God that we have. And this is expressed so well in the text in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, where the Scripture says, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience 
by the things which he suffered. And he was fully man as well as fully God. We have to guard the humanity of Christ as well as the deity because he identified with us. You know, the wages of sin is death and mankind became sinful. And we just the only way for a holy God to not cast us into hell was for death to be paid on the part of mankind. Jesus death as a man satisfies the righteous holiness of God that we can have salvation and only through love. And, you know, you can't separate love, humility, and mercy. So many of these things run together there. But humility is such a profound uh, attribute of God. It's just marvelous. Now, let's think, you know, God, the whole plan of salvation is based on humility. If the father was not humble, he could not send his son. And boy, Jesus' act of humility is overwhelming. And the way that we receive salvation has to be through humility. And this is expressed as Jesus expounded the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith uh, in Luke chapter 18. And let's begin in about the 10th verse. It says, two men went into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as the eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. We have to humble ourselves to receive Christ, and people that say they're Christians and are proud God is resisting them. God is resisting them. And, you know, I think here is where you and I and everyone that represents Christ by putting forth his word, we must really examine our hearts. And I know we, you do that all the time. I do, too, because we're so fallen that Satan will do everything he can to push us, you know, the wrong way. And anyone that thinks there have some kind of a vax that prevents them from having pride, you don't. <laughs> you know, pride is one of the most powerful strains of our fallen nature that's in everybody. You know, everyone has to crucify this monster called pride. Well, I mean, I've been fighting it a lot here lately, I think, because I've just had... I've felt like there's just been attacks coming towards me about even some some things we believe or things we say sometimes or or what we do and and I I feel a, a, a pride like I want to bow up and and we're we're right you know and, and there's you know you know what I'm talking about I just yeah I feel I've been battling that a lot lately last couple of weeks anyway and we always will. And thank 
God that we know we have to battle it. That's that's a big, big, big deal. Now, let's look at what Jesus said. Now, these are a couple of the most profound scriptures in the word of God. John chapter five and verse 41. Six words. I receive not honor from men. I receive not honor from men. Now, that's a piercing scripture. He goes on to say in John 5, 44, you know, we can just ask ourselves and everyone that teaches or preaches or just ever believer, do you do what you do to receive honor from men or do you do what you do to really please the Father? And look what it says in verse 44. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Now that will dig it down. That will dig it down. And in many ministries, so-called, the pride and the hubris and the greed is so obvious. And I think that this is kind of characteristic of the whole American religious industry. Uh, and that's what it is. It's a multi-million dollar industry. But this really gets to the core of it. Uh, are we really doing it to impress somebody, what someone is going to think of it? Or are we going to do it because of Christ? And I do have a list of people that I care what think what they think about me, but it's not a real long one. It's not a real long one because when you really strive to preach the word of God, he has to bring forth the fruit. And we can't worry about man's reactions. Well if I say this, what are they going to think? This, that, the other. You know, we we have to do what we do for the glory of God and not to impress any human. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, we were just reading that, um, excuse me, Philippians 2, 21. And right after the passage there, we were reading from about Christ emptying, him, emptying himself out. You know, Paul talked about when he got thrown in prison, you know, he says, well, boy, there's some people really just tried to come in and uh, capitalize on that. You know, some preach Christ out of contention, things like that. He said in the first chapter of Philippians and in verse 21, he said, for all men seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. And Paul pretty much laid this accusation against other ministries in Philippi in his day. And it's just like when Paul was put in prison, they just were glad to just get in there and take over. You know, you know, I'm Mr. Big Cheese. Now uh, we can get them listeners on our channel, you know, <laughs> this type of thing, you know, and uh, Galatians uh, chapter one, verse eight and nine. And boy, this is so good. This gets to the heart of it, you know, and this is where we have to repeatedly go to make sure that. It's for the glory of God. It's not to try to please anybody. And there are things, you know, um, to just go after hits and views. There's just topics you can do, and a lot of them need to be done, 
but you know they're going to get more views than if you talk about the humility of God or something. But it's got to be to please the Lord and not other people. The things that are least popular, you talk about the cross, you talk about humility, you talk about self-denial. The natural man isn't going to just say, ooh, goody, goody, goody. You know, it's uh, it's the way it is. Now, Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, and Paul put it like this. He said, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Philippians 2 said Christ took upon himself the form of a servant. We have to 100% see ourselves as a servant of Christ. If Jesus was alive walking upon the earth, and he is alive moving in the midst of the candlesticks, but if Jesus would teach about the tares on the wheat, you wouldn't dare try to correct him. (laughs) You know, you wouldn't dare try to correct him. And this kind of brokenness and humility and submission to where we understand we're a servant of this man. He was a servant of the Father. We're a servant of him. It's just amazing. And we really have to to dig down deep. Am I a God pleaser or am I a man pleaser? You know, there's a man pleasing spirit that uh, is the driving force of most ministries in North America. Speaking of Petra, that was one of their big songs back in the day. Man pleaser or God pleaser. Yeah, I remember that. It's a great song. It is great. Great lyrics. I mean, great. Now, this is what Thomas Koch said about the text in Galatians. Before his conversion, he was employed by men in their designs and made it his business to please them. And we can read in the book of Acts where Paul was sent out by the Sanhedrin to persecute and even have Christians murdered. Goes on to say, but when God called him, he received his commission and instructions from him alone and immediately entered upon his office without consulting any man, whatever. And this is amazing. He didn't go to Peter and John. We look in Galatians where they met and Peter and John, they giving the right hand of fellowship said, you know, this guy's all right. But he didn't, when he was born again, he didn't run to Peter and John who had been a couple pretty guys good guys to talk with, but it says, without consulting any man, whatever, preaching that and that only which he had received from Christ so that it would be senseless folly in him and no less than the forsaking of his master, Jesus Christ, if he should in any way, as was reported of him, mix anything of man's with the pure doctrine of the gospel. How prideful it is when we will mix things in. It is absolutely sin. It's pride. 
this is so important for us to see this so clear that we cannot mix things in. The pure message of the gospel has to be delivered without uh, trying to please anything or anybody. And the minute we do, uh, we have gone away from that, the real gospel. Yeah. And this kind of characterizes the religious spirit. They mix things in. They mix stuff in. And boy, we could give a bushel of examples of that. And in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 11, Jesus said, but he that is greatest among you, and you know, this is the passage where it says, neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. So Freemason, when you go down and call that man and uh, the robe worshipful master, You've just sinned against the, the master. Mm. Uh, for, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servants. And whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. And, you know. Such it is. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 11. And uh, let's look at verses 28 through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I really love Brother John Gill's comment on that. And he said this, the sense I take to be is this, that a man must first make a profession of his faith in the God of Israel. Now, just think about that for a minute. Do you really claim to believe in the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, it's the same God, and we're going to see how important that is when um, we really think about the unity of Christ with the Father that operated totally out of humility. Brother Gill goes on to say, he says, the sense I take, their sense I take to be is this, that a man must first make a profession of his faith in the God of Israel and then live conformably to his law. Now, we don't hear that anymore either, do we? You need to believe that you are in a covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, this is the new covenant, but you're still in a covenant with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you're obligated to live conformably to his law. We just don't get that anymore. <laughs> on no. the, we don't. But I mean, he says, agreeably to this, Christ exhorts such persons who come to him for rest and happiness, to profess their faith in him, to embrace the doctrines of the gospel, to submit to his ordinances, and to walk according to those laws, commands, and orders, which he, as king of saints, has made and requires obedience to. And we've talked about that, about the the commands of Jesus not being optional. 
You know, they're not. If you love me, keep my commandments over and over. This is it right here. And he says, so those who come to him for life and believe in him as the savior of their souls, though they are to trust in him and depend upon any duties performed by them, they are not to sit still or to lay aside the performance of good works or live a licentious course of life, but are always to be doing the will and work of the Lord. And this he calls his yoke in distinction from the yoke of the law of Moses and of the tradition of the elders, which was that which came to be known as oral Torah, and when the oral Torah was written down, became the Talmud. And in Judaism, they believed that when God gave the Torah, that there was a second oral Torah that was given, that was never written down, that was passed on. You know, if <laughs> you know, you can't pass something on from one end of the room to another without getting it twisted. But the problem, there's a lot of problems with that. Right in Exodus 24, it says Moses wrote down all the words. You know, the idea that there's a secondary law out there that is passed down by gossip for a few thousand years. I mean, that's obvious what that is. So that's the the heavy yoke. If you try and whether it's the Torah that is perverted through the Talmud or the Kabbalah, the doctrine of Christ has been similarly perverted by the modern religious system. You see, it's the mixture. Just like Brother Cope said, how senseless is it that we think we can mix in the things of man with the pure truth of God. That is the ultimate expression of pride, is it not? Yeah. Well, in first Peter chapter two, verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, but Christ, because Christ also suffered for us. We read the text in Hebrews five. He learned obedience through his suffering. Peter says, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Now, I always use the acronym, the C, the D, the E. It's the cross, and every spiritual benefit we receive that's a real one will come through faith in what Christ did on the cross. The D, the doctrine, that's the doctrine of Christ. Those red letters we talk about every week, the cross, the doctrine, and there's the example. Not only was he the sinless son of God that died upon the cross to give us the covenant blessings to his covenant people, but he also lived a sinless life. And we look at how he lived and everything about everything Christ did is the example of what we should follow, just like the Word of God says. So let's just pump a little leather. Well, let's let's read the text in John uh, 13, and beginning in verse 4. And this is the text where, at the Last Supper, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And it goes like this, John chapter 13, verse 4. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him. That was a little pride right there. Whenever we try to resist what Jesus said or did, that's pride. Boy, and Peter, he had to get some worked out of him, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I've done to you? Ye call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Now, this is something that we have actually done. We have had foot washings. I've been to one and of those. You was at one of our foot washings up in when we was Evansville, wasn't you? Yeah. 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 I'd forgot of that to right now. And uh, down at our, our group meeting in Evansville with Cecil and Sue Cobb, they're going to have a foot washing down there real soon. And literally, uh, if you can get down on your hands and knees and literally wash someone's feet, and what I always do is pray for the person when you're washing their feet, pray for them. It totally transforms the way you think about people. It really does. And it, it's a great thing. And Jesus, and of course, this is the larger lesson of just humility in every aspect. But I think it is very right and proper to, in the communion service, to incorporate a foot washing just like he did. It's a powerful thing. I've heard I've heard some thoughts on this topic is, uh, well, this is symbolic of just serving people because Back then, they wore sandals, and there was no pavement, and everybody's feet was dirty all the time. So that's why they did that. Now, you know, our feet are not, you know, we've got socks and shoes and all this kind of stuff. So it's just symbolic. You know, what do you think about that? It certainly is symbolic of every aspect of humility in every part of our life. But it is also a concrete example that when we do the things Jesus said to do, we will be blessed. And that's what I say about all of God's law. Wherever wherever you can find the law of God, of course, some things in God's law just apply to men, some just apply to women. Some were just when Israel was in the land. And the Levitical priesthood is gone, thank God. We don't bring the, the bulls and the goats anymore. But God's law never changes. And whenever we can apply something there, we'll be blessed by it, the things that do apply. The same thing with Christ. When we can apply and actually do this, I guarantee you, you'll be blessed. And you can do this in your home if it's just your family. Uh, dads, get down and wash your family's feet. 
and uh, wife, wash your husband's feet, your children's feet. And it's a, it's a trans, it's a, it's a powerful thing. And what we would do, and we did this there in Evansville, the man would wash the man's feet. The women would wash the women's feet. And it's a beautiful thing and powerful. And I think that, uh, the testimonies would abound because they're just, you see, when you're doing what he said to do, the Holy Spirit is going to really touch you in a deep way because you're being obedient. Yeah. I remember the guy, I don't remember who, I think it was your nephew or something that ended up washing my feet. Mm-hmm. Or, or Kevin. is it your nephew or is it Donna's nephew? My nephew, Kevin. Uh-huh. Kevin. I think it was him. And yeah, he, he uh, asked me if there was anything I needed prayer for. Yeah. And I told him something. I don't remember what I told him now. but And then, yeah, he was washing my feet, and he was praying over that prayer request. It was pretty cool. That is cool, isn't it? It's great. It's great. Jesus is great. And when we just obey, it's it's beyond. It's supernatural. It's just awesome. The blessings of God that will come to us just out of simple obedience. Yeah. Now. Let's pump some leather here, or let's pump some bonded leather. My little New Testament's just paperback here, but let's let's just pump a little leather here, and let's just read some scriptures, and let's just get a picture of Christ from his own words of his relationship with the Father. And let, let's just read and just pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal the humility of Christ unto you. In John five nineteen, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. In verse 30 of John 5, I can of mine own self do nothing as I hear. I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which sent me. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And every week when we teach the doctrine of Christ, we're teaching the words of the Father. Jesus says, Everything I say, Mm. the Father gave me the words. How can anybody that has a modicum of scriptural knowledge try to separate Jesus from the Father and the old from the new. They are so intertwined in humility. Mm. There's no separating them. There's no separating them. In verse 28, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, ye both know me and ye know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. In John chapter 8 
and verse 28. There's just a bunch of this in there. I mean, ain't just a little bit. There's a bunch of it. John chapter 8, verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak of these things. You see, and just like the Jews could not understand that Jesus did nothing of himself but what the Father told him to do, people today totally separate Jesus from the Father. You know, the God of anger, you know, the, the angry God, the Father, and the loving Jesus. I mean, that is so far off. That is just really out in the cornfield. John 8 and 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. In verse 50, And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. In John chapter 14 and verse 10, John chapter 14 and verse 10. And as we read these, just read these scriptures and pray over them and pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal unto you the marvelous unity of Christ and the Father. And um, there's a statement here, if I can, Andrew Murray made. Um, this is another thing Andrew Murray said. He so gets it. He said he took the place of entire subordination and gave God the honor and glory which is due to him. Total subordination. Didn't come of myself. I can't do anything but myself. The words I speak, they're not even my words. You know, I don't do anything but what I see the Father do. He said, the life of entire self abnegation of absolute surrender and dependence upon the Father's will, Christ found to be one of perfect peace and joy. It was his joy to come to that place of absolute submission to the Father, and he was happy with that. You know, he wasn't seeking to do any, come down and make anything up. Total submission to the Father. Total down to every action and every word that Christ found ultimate peace and joy in that. He teaches us, Brother Murray goes on, he teaches us where true humility takes its rise and finds its strength in the knowledge that it is God who worketh all in all and that our place is to yield to him in perfect resignation and dependence, in full consent to be and to do nothing of ourselves. Wow. We just need to drive down deeper and deeper, total dependence on Christ, not for anyone's glory, not for ours, not to please anybody else. It's all about Jesus, Jimmy. It's all about him. And in John chapter 14 and verse 10, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And in verse 24, he that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. And these attributes of God are so important. 
not because we're so clever and smart, but because it's just the word of God. And when we can see the humility and submission of the Godhead, we understand what our relationship is. Uh, And John chapter 20, in John's gospel chapter 20, and let's look at uh, verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so. I send you. Jesus was sent by the Father. He was totally submissive unto him. Jesus says, and then, uh, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost, you know, and you're going to, because you're going to need a little help with this one, you see, so we'll just breathe the Holy Ghost on you right now, because you're going to need some help here. But just like Jesus was Totally submitted the Father. The Father sent Jesus. He was in total submission. Jesus sends us. That's how we got to be. That's the mark we press toward. Total submission to Christ. This this whole last few minutes of, of you reading through John, I mean, that that's very humbling to me because I I fall way short of, of all this. And I, I don't think there is anybody especially those in ministry that could not feel conviction of the holy spirit and know that we just need to humble ourselves more pride is in us all so much that you see and humility is a tricky thing if you say you got it well you're bragging and you just lost it you may not have it yeah but you know, you know, but just what you were just reading about what Jesus was saying about his relationship with the Father, I can't even say that. That only thing I say is only what I've heard the Father say, or the doing his will is the joy of my life. I think it is, but when I really just sit back and think, am I really doing this? Am I putting his will b- before my will? I'm nowhere even close to that. You know, my goodness. First John 1 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're going to have this sinful fallen nature till we die. And I think so much of what Jonathan Fletcher said, John Wesley's friend who, and John Wesley said about him, he traveled thousands of miles with Fletcher on on horseback, through all kinds of weather, through persecutions. Uh, they would knock John Wesley out preaching in the street, and his brother and Fletcher would get hold of his feet and drag him out so the horses wouldn't trample him. They knocked him and, out? Yeah, they literally they knocked him out with bricks, and there would be times where they would have to pull him out to keep the horses from trampling. Were they gnashing their teeth at him? <laughs> Yeah, it was serious. It was real and serious persecution because the message of holiness had never been readily received. John Wesley and George Whitfield were banned from every pulpit in England, Catholic and Protestant, and they took it to the fields. They would preach to the miners. They went out. They formed what was called a holiness club, and they just sought God. And uh, they would, and I know, I think it was Whitfield, 
that said in these journals that they would preach, they would pray and they'd go preach and they would preach when the mine would change shifts and the miners would come out and they would just go out there when the change shifts and they preach. And it says one day that Whitfield saw the miner and his face was blackened and he said he saw a tear cut a river down through that coal dust. And uh, that's how revivals are born. And, uh, you know, that's it. I, it's just God is so good and he's so real and he so wants to uh, bring forth salvation to others because he's the humble God. He wants the everyone to be saved. And that's what he asks of us to put his gospel out to others. And Proverbs chapter six, verse 16 the scripture says, these six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Number one, a proud look, a proud look. <laughs> a proud look is number one on the list of abominations, a proud look. And uh, in verse uh, Proverbs chapter 16 and beginning in verse 18 and 19, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better it is to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. First um, Peter chapter five and verse six, the scripture says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And I don't think I finished my thought on Jonathan Fletcher, but Fletcher and John Wesley said about him after, uh, I had a map drawn up of all the travels of John Wesley, which he did on horseback. It was so many thousands of miles, it'd wear you out in a car. It really would. And Fletcher was with him and uh, was his servant and coworker. And he said about Jonathan Fletcher, I never heard the man speak an improper word. And they called him the Holy Fletcher, whether that was good or not. But Fletcher wrote that there never was a day where he didn't pray the Lord's Prayer to have his sins forgiven and to forgive the sins of others. Because we have that sinful nature. And it's so easy for us to be proud. When we have breakthroughs and we see good things happen in the ministry, the devil will say, well, looky what you've done. Ain't you something? <laughs> you know, and he'll he'll actually, he'll do it every time. He'll want to make us feel prideful about what we think we did when we really didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. All we can do is to be a servant and to give people the words of Jesus, just like he gave the words of the Father to us. You know, it's amazing. And we have to continually submit ourselves and hear the same thought as in James. He said the same thing uh, that uh, uh, in verse five, it says, be clothed with humility for God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And we have to repeatedly repent of pride, just like we've talked about in the DLC on repentance, 
that over and over and over we can't think, well, boy, I, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. It ain't like that because this is something that we have to habitually be aware of. The more I learn, the more I learn that I need to learn more. <laughs> yeah. The more you learn what you don't know. Yeah. Now let's look at another key text from the doctrine of Christ in, um, Matthew 18, in the 18th chapter of Matthew, and let's start in verse 1. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus here was talking to the disciples. <laughs> he was talking to the, the apostles. Uh, yeah, it's this little child here. You boys need to get converted or you ain't going to come. You know, He said, whosoever therefore shall humble himself with this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just go back in our doctrine of Christ time machine, and let's go back and see what some of the old commentators had to say about this, how they understood it, and they got it, and people don't get this anymore. They really don't, but this is what John Gill said. That is, unless you learn to entertain an humble and modest opinion of yourselves and not envious of one another and drop all contentions about primacy and preeminence, and all your ambitious views of one being greater than another in a vainly expected temporal kingdom. Now, get that phrase, in a vainly expected temporal kingdom. And Brother Gill understood that the reason why they were thinking that way is that they were thinking of an earthly kingdom where one person would be bigger cheese over the other, just like, you know, the mayors over the chief of police. Well, I want to be the mayor. I want to be Mayor McCheese, you know, uh, things which are not to be found in little children, though not free from sin and other aspects, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's take a little listen to John Trapp, the Puritan, what John Trapp said about this text. Same thing. He says, except ye turn over a new leaf and cast away these fond conceits and crotchets, these golden dreams of an earthly kingdom and your high performance therein, which like bullets of lead fastened upon to the eyelids of your mind, make you that you cannot look upwards. <laughs> what? Yeah, listen to <laughs> I got to read that again. These guys could talk. Listen to that. Except ye turn over a new leaf and cast away these fond conceits and crotchets, these golden dreams of an earthly kingdom and your high performance therein, which like bullets of lead fastened to the eyelids of your mind, make you that you cannot look upwards. And John Trapp said, they're looking forward to that earthly kingdom. It's like on your eyelids putting lead, like, you know, you have a lead fish weight and you just have those 
weights on your eyes. You can't look up because you're thinking about that earthly kingdom. Mm. Of And, you know, we could just ask the question, and it's obvious, are people today that are looking for that earthly kingdom of flesh and blood entering the kingdom, do you have some lead on your eyeballs? And I think the answer is obvious. Jesus said the kingdom doesn't come with observation, right? Yeah, he did. The kingdom of God is in you. The kingdom it's of God is at hand. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, but how how much does that play into pride and the way that we think of ourselves and our place in eternity? Adam Clark, Adam Clark said this, unless ye be saved from these prejudices, which at present are so baneful to your nation, seeking a temporal and not a spiritual kingdom. The king is heavenly. His subjects are heavenly minded. Their country is heavenly. For they are strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. The government of this kingdom is holy, spiritual, and divine. How important is that for us to understand? We're talking about the real kingdom of God and our place in it. That was what they were being prideful about. And missing this has to result in pride. It's got to result in lead weights on your eyelids that'll keep you looking down instead of looking up. Mm. It's a, it's another, it's a huge point. And these guys got it. I mean, they, they got it. They understood that this thing of the kingdom of God being earthly, not spiritual, that was why they killed Christ. You know, in John chapter six, they wanted to come made Jesus the king. He ran from them, you know, and then they had the audacity to say that Jesus came to be an earthly king over Israel. It's just absolute. Well, J Jesus even told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would be here fighting for me. There you go. So, you know, it is what it is. He that hath an ear, let him hear. <laughs> you know, uh, there's texts where throughout the gospel, <laughs> they were fighting among who would be the greatest, you know. <laughs> they were soaked in it. So here we are. The Last Supper, you know, Jesus washes their feet. He's trying to get this true to them. But here we go. Uh, Luke 22, verse 20. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that would do these things. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. At the Last Supper, they were still fighting about it, still fighting about it. My goodness. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so but he that is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. And in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, the apostle tells us how real spiritual authority works. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, 
but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, not as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. True spiritual authority will lead by example, not by coercion. And it's amazing, isn't it? But, you know, it took something to change these guys, didn't it? It took Pentecost. Holy Spirit. You know, they they had to have it. And let's just follow on in Luke chapter 24, beginning uh, Luke 24, 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power on high. Uh, yeah, boys, don't start nothing yet. <laughs> You know, they they had to go and tarry in Jerusalem from the power from on high because they clearly weren't ready to do it there. They're still fighting over who's the greatest. So, yeah, uh, the resurrected Christ said, you know, boys, you go to Jerusalem and there's one more thing here we got to do. And uh, it goes on to say, of course, in, in Acts, the first chapter, uh, in Acts chapter one, and we see here in... Um, Verse 4 and 5, it says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you've heard from me. Yeah, don't be going anywhere doing anything yet. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days since. And that in Acts 2, uh, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And the Holy Spirit was given according to promise on the day of Pentecost. And the promise was extended unto us all. In verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the sign of the, the gift of the Holy Ghost. And Peter that denied Christ and uh, denied him three times, that Peter that said, uh, you'll never wash my feet. After the Holy Spirit was given, he was a new man. And as Peter looked back, and let, let's just read a couple more things, and because this is so important, in Acts chapter 10, because, you know, we have to do more than tell people what not to do. We have to show people how to be able not to do it. Uh, in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, beginning in verse 44, uh, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And this shows us a couple things. Well, that you can be born again and filled with the Holy Ghost before you're baptized. You know, Acts 2.38, usually, Repent of your sins, you're born again, you're baptized in water, then you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But they were filled with the Holy Ghost before they were baptized in water. And then they said, well, boy, what can forbid these Gentiles to be baptized? And that was a big deal for the Jews to, uh, and you know, this is the chapter 
the unclean animals in the sheet, arise, Peter, kill and eat, which people want to try to apply to being able to eat pork. <laughs> and the whole point was to get across to these Jewish boys that God is no respecter of persons, that the Holy Ghost is poured out by grace through faith on the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Yeah, and he even explained that in 1028, <laughs> you know. He explained—yeah, read that scripture, Jimmy. So people people just stop reading after it says, you know, that he said, arise and eat and all that. Don't call what I've made clean, unclean. There, They stop right there. No, 28, he goes, and he said unto them, ye know how that it is an awful, an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now, that's a big deal, isn't it, Jimmy? That's yeah. a big deal for a big deal. God used visions. He used a miraculous Holy Ghost impartation to open Peter's eyes that God's no respecter persons. You know, we can read in Galatians where uh, there that, when the certain came down from Jerusalem, you know, Peter would eat with the Gentiles, but when certain people would come down from Jerusalem, he wouldn't eat with them, you know, doing a little man pleasing there, you know? So, yeah. And, you know, the word of God portrays, it doesn't hide the sin of the, the apostles or the old Testament saints. It shows their warts as well as their great value and their courage. And it shows us you know, how we do overcome and live by faith. And this is such a big deal. And it's a shame when people miss it by trying to give themselves a little more gratification in the flesh. Uh, but Acts 15, you know, and I believe in speaking in tongues and I've experienced it. But I really believe that our friends that believe in speaking in tongues and do speak in tongues, generally some of them, that they have totally got the cart before the horse. Now, let's go to Acts 15. And in Acts chapter 15, this is Peter reflecting on what happened in Acts chapter 10. This is actually in Acts 15. This is the apostolic council. And Peter here is addressing James and all the elders and telling them, uh, reflecting back on what happened with Cornelius when the Holy Ghost was poured out on the Gentiles. And you can read in Galatians that, you know, Peter and John had no problem with that. They give them the right hand of fellowship, said, you go get them. Uh, but let's read Acts 15. And let's read verses 7 through 9. And let's really focus here on what Peter thought about that was a sign to him that they were filled with the Holy Ghost. And our Pentecostal friends, they will say, well, tongues is the initial evidence. You don't have the Holy Ghost till you speak in tongues. Then you've got it. Look what Peter said here in Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my, by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness 
giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This is the thing that Peter said was the real initial evidence. That word purify means to cleanse and to scrub. That's what they had to have. They were so full of that carnal nature that they couldn't overcome the pride that was in them. But when the purification of the heart by faith, that cleansing of the fallen nature came by the power of Pentecost, the same Peter that denied him three times would be crucified upside down rather than deny his Lord. This is the lesson for us all, that only through the cross and only through Pentecost. And let's just, I would just call upon us to do this. You know, I, I'm not against tongues at all. I'm not. But I believe because this has been set aside. I don't think we're going to hear many sermons from modern charismatics and Pentecostals that talk about the Holy Spirit baptism, talking about the first thing being the cleansing of our fallen nature, the purifying of our hearts by faith. And when people really get that cleansing in, um, I'll read a text in Luke, the the prophecy of it from John the Baptist, and in Luke, the third chapter, and the 16th verse, John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but when mightier than I cometh, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into the garner, but the shaft he will burn with fire unquenchable, and the fire of the Holy Ghost will burn the shaft of our fallen nature to where, as the old preachers would say, while sin doth remain, it shall not reign. We have to have that cleansing. And when we pray for the sanctifying baptism operation of the Holy Ghost, focus on the cleansing of your heart. Believe God for the cleansing of the heart and the purifying of the heart by faith, the burning away of that carnal nature that we all have. And John Wesley had a sermon, he called it the circumcision of the heart. And when you're circumcised, they take the knife and they cut your flesh. And in the circumcision of the heart, the Holy Ghost takes the sword of the spirit and that old fallen nature, he just slices it and it's there but it's crucified, it's circumcised to where by the power of the Holy Spirit and faith in the cross, we can live by the power of love to fulfill God's law. With all of my heart.